Jimmy Kowalski. The sun is down, the streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary-eyed truckers and the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well. And for the next little while, it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there, and together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back to Largely the Truth. I am your host, Brennan Store, and this is the internet's favorite podcast. Eh, the internet just doesn't know it yet. As always, I hope this finds you well. I am well. The worst of my allergies seems to have passed, which will be a relief for anyone who heard me on the last show. God help me. Where was I? Right, yes. On this episode, we are sticking with the horror theme established on the last two shows. First with novelists Steve Stred and Andrew Piper, then with filmmakers John Adams and Toby Poser. This time around, we are speaking to composer and film journalist Jerry Smith, whose most recent EP Rescore, released as part of his project Rainy Days for Ghosts, dropped in March. Rescore is a fantastic record in which Jerry reinvents scores for a number of classic horror films and you will be hearing selections from three of those tracks on the show. We also talk about how age has mellowed our genre tastes, the relationship lessons we learned from Jacob's Wife, which is a movie, for those of you out there, and so, so much more. Before we get there, though, a reminder that if you want ad-free episodes and bonus conversations when available, head to patreon.com slash largely the truth, where you can become a member for the low, low price of $2 a month. Also, if you like what you hear and you want to know more, come find me on the Repod app, available in both iOS and Google Play stores. We have a dedicated chat on there. I don't know why I say we, I mean me. Me have, I have a dedicated chat on there. So just search for the show and you'll find it. Finally, the most recent episode of Weird Together, the film review live stream I co-host with Joseph Camo of In Search of Ghosts, just streamed on YouTube this past Tuesday. We were talking about the 2018 documentary Bob Lazar, Area 51 and UFOs, and if you want to hear me make jokes about Mickey Rourke, that is the place to go, unless you're Mickey Rourke, in which case I made no jokes about you. Please continue with your day, sir. Is it gone? Okay. So, yeah, you can find that, I did make jokes about him, over at the Ghost Story Guys YouTube page, or by checking the link in the show notes. Alright. With all that housekeeping out of the way, it's time to sit back relax, and reach out to Jerry Smith of Rainy Days for Ghosts. As a film journalist, my guest tonight has written for outlets such as Dread Central, Fangoria, The Film Scorer, Council of Zoom, and Rue Morgue, to name just a few. As a composer, he has scored a number of short films and been awarded Best Original Score from the Vesuvius Film Festival for his work on the 2020 short Hangnail. Also in 2020, he began releasing his own haunting electronic music under the name Rainy Days for Ghosts and his latest EP, Rescore, arrived on Bandcamp in March of this year. He is Jerry Smith. Jerry, welcome to Larger the Truth. Thank you. I'm excited to be on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you, man. Uh, like I told you before we, were, uh, before we went on air, I've been listening to your stuff since, uh, I think it was the I Know Now That I Will Never Be Okay EP. 
in late 2020. So it's uh, cool to actually be able to sit down and chat. Yeah, definitely. I always like talking about music. I never get the chance to. And before we get to the music, I kind of wanted to just talk about horror because, again, off air, we were talking about Larry Fessenden and, and things like this. And you discovered the horror genre quite young, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Basically, without going super into detail, I came from a very abusive childhood. My mom was a nurse at the time, and she married this man from India that was really obsessed with American culture and film specifically, but unfortunately had a pretty bad drinking problem. So one time, my brother and I got on a plane to fly to Arizona to spend the summer with my mom. We got there, and she was in the hospital with a broken back from this guy. And so to kind of keep me away from this guy who would really just love to just, just, you know, child abuse. Uh, so to keep me away from him, my mom would give me enough money to go to the theater that we live next door to from open to close basically. And so those whole summers were spent with me in the theater, discovering all these movies. I had no idea what they were. And the first one that I saw, I was seven years old. And this is pre-Columbine, so they didn't really card kids as long as you had like a letter from your parent. They didn't care. The first film I saw in the middle of this really dark time, this dark childhood, was Halloween 4. And I had no idea what the movie was. I just liked the poster. It looked kind of freaky. And, you know, as a seven-year-old, we're looking for those kind of monsters to, you know, latch onto. And I, I, I discovered Halloween 4, and it became like my lifelong obsession based on that. Like, horror to me growing up, it was as a form of escapism. It was a, it was, you know what? Like, I'm going to go through these journeys. I'm going to live vicariously through these final girls or other characters and feel like I could beat this monster that I knew I was going to have to deal with in reality at the end of the night. But during that hour and a half or two hours that I'd see these movies in the theaters, that was my sanctuary. And so like, I quickly became a monster kid, you know, just loving everything about horror. And then when I was nine, I discovered Fangoria magazine, which changed everything for me because before that, I just thought I was an alien, you know, like I, I didn't know that there were other kids out there that liked this stuff. So it was almost like finding your, 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 uh, your tribe, you know, and I've spent my entire life just adoring the genre and, and, and you know, I'm a little bit long winded when I talk about it just because I get so excited talking about horror and what it means to me. But like the genre, I think it's the one genre that is able to tell so many different kinds of stories and touch on so many things. And it could go from everything from thought provoking films like, you know, Midsummer or Hereditary to like silly ones like, like, you know, Full Moon movies like Puppet Master or the silly Evil Bong movies. Like I, I have equal love for like A24, you know, as I do, you know full moon and stuff like I, I just think it's the best genre because and and also you could go to a convention for horror and you see all these fellow people that love the same thing but you can't go to a, like a notebook convention and just see a bunch of people who just love rom-coms you know like it's, it's the one <laughs> genre that feels kind of like you know kind of tight-knit in some ways absolutely i'm the same way with horror <laughs> i just kind of lose myself in like talking about it but you wrote a piece for council of zoom called i lost my edge how having kids changed my taste in horror movies yeah. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, obviously, you know, as a kid, I have to assume, you know, or sorry, once maybe you became a teenager, you were a little more interested in, in like I was in the more extreme stuff, trying to find like the most intense experience yeah. you can find. You know, I, I remember when I first saw Fulci's zombie and just being, I, <laughs> just loving it. I couldn't, I couldn't get enough of it. That eyeball gag, right? Exactly. That's it. The eye, the eyeball, the shark. Mm-hmm. 
was that the same progression for you? Yeah, yeah. When, see, when I was a kid, like I had an older brother who was about two years, or I still do, uh, was about two years older than me. And it was almost like a dare, like which one of us could find the most jacked up horror movies, you know, like <laughs> of Faces of Death, you know, like I was the same way when I discovered those Fulci movies or like the Beyond, you know, like I love the Beyond still, but like for the longest time, even into my early adult years, it was just like, what is the most screwed up movie I can watch? Like there's, there's one story I love to tell and I'm kind of embarrassed about it now, but when a Serbian film came out, like I, I watched that and it felt kind of like, and it sounds dramatic, but it kind of felt like I lost a bit of my soul watching this movie. Like it just, it messed me up in the worst way. And so as soon as it was over, I was like, I kind of never want to watch this again, but I also want to secretly throw a pizza party for my friends and my brother and show them this movie. (laughs) And I did that. I did that that week. And all like a whole bunch of friends and my, we went to my brother's house and he had a big screen TV at the time. And I showed him a Serbian film. And then afterwards, half of my friends got up and one of them just said, screw Jerry and just walked out the door and I didn't see him for a week. And my <laughs> brother, my brother got up and left the room for 10 minutes. And I was like, where did this guy go? And he came back and he goes, yeah, sorry guys. I just need to go hug my son. Like, oh, wow. I felt so bad for that. Yeah. And like, the, the reason I wrote that article is because I, I noticed a shift in a lot of the stuff that I wanted to watch as I had kids and got older, you know, like I remember uh, a friend of mine, uh, A.J. Bowen, he, he was in House of the Devil and the Sacrament and other stuff. The Sacrament uh, film that he was in of by Ty West was playing at Fantastic Fest one year. And I, I went to see it and, you know, it's kind of a loosely fictional, you know, Jonestown massacre kind of, you know, movie and afterwards he came up to me he's like so bud what'd you think and i was like it was really good but i don't know if i ever want to watch that movie it's an intense intense film once you have kids it's just kids in jeopardy like it's the quickest way to just reach into my heartstrings and pull them out like it's hard for me to watch those movies these days sure i recall a similar situation i i had never seen cannibal holocaust before and we had some, I had some friends over who were not horror people at all, but they thought, well, we're going to watch a scary movie. And I, I put it on because <laughs> I thought, well, I've, I've heard lots about this. I've been waiting to see it for a long time. I grew up in a very small town where it was hard to get movies. So finally got my hands on a copy and it, I'll just say we did not make it to the end of that film. And I don't think I've spoken to most of those people again. Yeah. It, it's interesting how that happens, especially people that kind of like just casually like the genre, you know, they, they don't realize like how dark sometimes it can get. And like, I mean, like I said, when I was a kid, like I, I just kind of got off on that stuff. But as an adult, like I, I think, and I'm not talking down about that stuff. I think it has a place and I'm super excited that so many people love that. Like a lot of the, those extreme horror films. And I still love a lot of French extreme stuff. Like Martyrs was a film that I watched when it first came out. And as soon as it was, it was over, I didn't know if I wanted to go out and buy the movie or throw it out my window. You know, I, I like the fact that some horror has that effect on you, that it, it, it hits you in profound ways to where you're like, I don't know if I love this or I hate this, but I'm, I'm constantly thinking about it. And I see, I love it for that. It's, I think it's just for me, I can't do a lot of those movies anymore. Yeah. I, I watched, I haven't seen Martyrs, but I watched the director, I think it was his follow-up film, Incident in a Ghostland. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, man, I did not like it, but I think about it often. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, 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 the reason I think that article resonated with me is because 
as I've gotten older, I have really, yeah, my enthusiasm for that kind of thing has waned. I think if I'd seen, if I'd seen Incident in the Ghostland when, at the age I was when Martyrs came out, I would have had a very different reaction to it. But now I, I'm at the age sometimes where I, you know, I, I threw the mutilator on recently. So it's on Arrow streaming. And yeah. I, the, the characters are actually fairly likable. I just wanted them to have a nice weekend, you know, and, and this, is, this is a bad head, uh, mindset to be watching horror movies in. I, I think over time, I've kind of went from rooting for the bad guys to rooting for the good guys. You know, like growing up, like one of my favorite movies of all time, and not just within the series, but of all time, like probably my third favorite movie of all time is Friday's 13th, the final chapter. Sure. And I've, I've said this on so many different podcasts that where it's kind of become the thing that will probably be one of the things on my gravestone. But <laughs> if you take Jason out of the final chapter, you'll still have a really great coming of age movie. Because that movie in particular, you care about every single character in that to where when the stuff finally starts happening and they start dying, you feel awful. And I, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's because, because of my childhood and many other things that I've kind of had to like make myself endure and survive a lot of the stuff to where like, I'd rather root for the people to win than these like very cynical movies where it's just like bleak nothingness. I couldn't agree more. I, I, I often end up in a place where I'll be watching something and I'll think, oh, I'm really enjoying this. And then it does that really frust what I find very frustrating, cynical kind of fake out at the end where you, everything's fine, but is it really? And I yeah. just, it, it, I mean, there's times where that works. You know, I think uh, Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. I mean, that, that yeah. ending hit me like a gut punch. That works. But I think it was The Ruins. I can't remember who. Oh, who, boy, yeah. You know, and you, like you get through that whole film. And then at the very end, there is just this flash of the, the contagion in the eye of the person getting away. And you think, come on, there, there's no vision here. You're just trying to make everyone miserable. Yeah, I know. Totally. And I, you know, I'm fine with dark movies. I, I, I love so many of them, but for me at this point in my life, I'm 41 now. Like I need to feel at least a sliver of hope. You know, it doesn't have to be a happy ending, but at least a sliver of hope that like there's something good that could come out of anything, you know? Absolutely. I, and you know, you and I were talking about Larry Fessenden off air and I think Jacob's wife is a great example of that. Uh, Travis Stevens film from last year. That is a great horror film that works also just as a purely relationship drama. Oh, totally. And that one in particular, you know, Barbara Crampton's a friend and she's talked about, I, I've probably interviewed her more times than any person in my career. <laughs> and you know, like, she will reach out and ask how the family is. She's such a great person. And I remember so many interviews throughout the years, she was talking about nurturing this script and trying to get that movie in particular made. So when it came out and it was as good as it was, because I mean, it was one of my favorite movies of last year, Jacob's Wife was. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right. It was such a good relationship drama that just happened to have vampirism in it. And I see, I love those kind of horror films. They're about something. You know, it could have vampires or werewolves or whatever, but there's something deeper in there. There's, there's things that they're trying to say. And what I loved about Jacob's wife is maybe a lot of people didn't get this, but what it meant to me is that there was a good amount of time early on in my marriage. Anytime my wife would go out of her way to go to something with me, like a lot of people that I knew would kind of treat her like it was just, oh, that's just Jerry's wife, you know, right. and like. After, after a while and talking to her about it, I felt so awful, you know? And so Jacob's wife to me was kind of like that is someone finding their own voice and being like, Hey, I'm a human being, you know, like I'm an important person, not just, not just 
you know, a commodity to this person. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember hearing a story from someone I, uh, in the town I grew up in where the, the husband passed and they'd been together for quite a long time. And afterwards she, she didn't even know how to write a check. Yeah. You know, it, it was just that had, she'd been so sequestered and it took her so long to find her own identity. And I think that's not a story we very often see portrayed in film, definitely not in horror, but, but just mm -hmm. even generally, I think that's just not a story we see. And I, I yeah. just really enjoyed seeing that. No, and totally. And I, I remember like there was, it was like a couple years ago, there was a newspaper that wrote a piece on Tabitha King, Stephen King's wife. And the whole thing, they were like, oh yeah. And there's a donation from Stephen King's wife. And it's oh. just like, she is a respected author. You know what I mean? She like Tabitha King is a wonderful writer, has had a great career as a writer, you know, is it, is someone who's donated money to charity, who is the mother of really great creative people, but like they kind of reduced her to like, oh, it's just Stephen King's wife. And I remember like how bummed out, like she must've been to read that. So like, you're right. We don't see that a lot in, in film. And I love that. I, I love seeing films where people that should be the focus of a lot of these things are finally the focus. On that subject, you mentioned Ty West earlier, and I <laughs> was so excited to go see X when it was finally came out, his, his most recent film. And I got to say, I loved it. And one of the many things I loved about it was the fact that, you know, and, and not to give anything away to our listeners, but the central relationship of what we'll call the villains you know, that's still a very human relationship. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's, it's um, in a way, it, 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 it connects to Jacob's wife in that, you know, Jacob's wife shows us that passion is possible in a relationship that has existed for some time. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm only a couple of years behind you, and I think that's, that's a valuable thing to keep in mind as we get older. But the flip side of that, I think X was so good at showing what happens when you let desire curdle. Yeah. And how, that, you know, resisting our, mm -hmm. our human urges can make monsters of us. There's all of that in spades. And there's also, for me, there was the idea of kind of craving that youth that maybe you've lost in time, you know, and being jealous of that youth, you know, like, obviously I'm, I'm not like in the dirt yet, but like, I see my kids and I see my kids being so excited and full of like excitement and youthful. And in some ways I'm like, God, I miss that so much. So that sure. movie in particular was a good, I thought it was a good look at that kind of jealousy of youth too. Very much so. And, and I think it's also a sort of an interesting statement on where we're at as a society, because I think we've reached this place where uh, there are, a, there is a group of, of, we'll say, we'll call them elders who are sort of refusing to be elders they kind of want to hang on to the earlier parts of their life. And I think that it means there's less room for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. No, totally. And so I, I felt X really kind of captured that as well. Oh, totally. So now I have to ask you, you're, you're a fan of Halloween four. I have to assume you're a fan of the franchise. I mean, Halloween four is easily the best of the sequels. So you're a man of taste and distinction. What were your thoughts on Halloween kills? I loved it with a passion. And I, and oh, here's the deal. I think what everyone hated about it. I think it was intentional on the surface. The evil dice to night chance could be annoying, but what they were for me was the whole red hat mentality. It, it was, it was people taking someone else's tragedy and making it their own when it shouldn't have been Tommy, Tommy and Halloween kills is the villain for me. 
Because what he does is he takes everything that happened to Lori and he takes it on himself to, to make this mob. And most of the deaths and Halloween kills is Tommy's fault. He takes all these people, he, he riles them up and they're basically MAGA hat wearers, you know, they're, they're basically the chanting, make America great again, but evil dies tonight. I thought it was a good look at mob mentality. I mean, even the shooting, you know, they, they shot it under the title of mob rules as a joke. I know it's not for some, you know, and the same, a lot of people didn't like 2018's film either. But as someone, like I said, like I, I try not to make it my entire personality, but as someone who struggles with CPTSD very badly because of childhood, 2018's film and Halloween Kills mean a lot to me on a personal, in a personal way, because I think it's a good look at, see, I didn't like Halloween H2O because that wasn't the Lori that I knew from 78. You know, she was kind of irritable. She was kind of like a pissed off, kind of, kind of a jerk in that movie. The Lori in 2018's film was someone broken by tragedy and trauma. And what was great about that is Michael Myers didn't care about Lori whatsoever in either of the newer films. It was Lori saying, this trauma will not get the best of me. And I'm going after this instead of letting it come after me. And I appreciated that. And I mean, Halloween Kills wasn't perfect, but I mean, I could not have been happier with it. I'm, I'm nervous about Halloween ends and how they're going to tie it up. But yeah, I've been so in love with the new trilogy so far. That is very cool, man. That, that is not a take on it I had, I had heard. And I, I really actually now want to revisit the film with that in mind. I, I liked the 2018. I was not a fan of Halloween Kills, but again, I think, I think maybe I just went in with the wrong mindset. So I, I'm going to revisit mm-hmm. it. Since we're talking about Halloween, I think it's a great transition to talking about your music. You, you perform under the name Rainy Days for Ghosts, and that started in 2020, right? Yes. Basically what happened was I had a loss in my family without going super into detail about it. I had a loss in my family and I really didn't know how to deal with it. And unfortunately I dealt with it very poorly. You know, I, I was closed off. I was reserved. I just, I, I regret how I dealt with it. I was, I dealt with it very, very poorly. And we had just moved into a new place and it was raining really hard. And I was kind of just thinking of that kind of subject and how I was still mourning the loss, but I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to put it to words, you know? And, and I was just like, feelings are the only thing that I'm going through right now, hard feelings. And they were very, they were very almost bipolar-ish, you know, like I was like highest of highs, lowest of lows. There's never in between. I mean, I've been a musician for, I don't know, like 35 years now. And I, I needed to get those feelings out, but I didn't want to write about them because they were personal to me. And I felt that maybe I'd written about them too much. And so I created Rainy Days for Ghosts as 100% at first as a way to deal with just the feelings. Every single release I've done before Rescore have been very specifically about very specific feelings that I were going through, that I was going through at the time. And that's where the name was born. And the whole project started out is basically mood music for myself. Since you brought up the new EP, Rescore, let's talk mm-hmm. about that. That is seven, I believe it's seven tracks, mm-hmm. reimagining scores from horror films. And I got to say what I really, I, I really enjoyed it. And one of the things I appreciated about it 
was that it would have been easy for you to just slap some, you know, synth loops on easily recognizable scores. Mm-hmm. But instead, you you really did. You reinvented music inspired by those films. And I would just love to hear about how that came together. Sure. One of my favorite things to do when I'm just like, I have some free time is watch some of my favorite movies kind of on just on mute and just play music alongside them and be like, what would I do if I was hired to do a Halloween film? Or what would I do if I was hired to do a Trancers film, which is not a lot of people know about Trancers, but it's like one of the, like my favorite movies of all time. You know, like, I love that series so much, but I like doing that. And I remember being so excited for the newest Texas Chainsaw movie to come out, the one that came out on Netflix. And it, it was a few weeks before it came out. And I was just like, I wonder what I would do if I ever got to play in the sandbox of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And so I was just playing around and I, I did a cue called Chainsaw, basically what I would do if I was given that opportunity. And then the reception was went pretty great. Like, and then someone was like, well, you should do a whole bunch of these. And the thought was already in my head, but it was just kind of like, I thought maybe nobody would like it. You know, like, like people would almost get offended. Like, well, why are you messing with like classic songs? Like, you know, like you'll never be as good as John Carpenter, which is the truth. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like who wouldn't want to play in that sandbox? So that was, that was the genesis. But also there was the idea that, see, I don't have an agent, you know? So unfortunately, because of that, everything I put out has to be very grassroots and I hate having to blow up people's timelines with my stuff, but it comes with the, you know, comes with the territory. So I thought also to get more gigs, what better way than to make a calling card with like, Hey, I can play in all of these franchises and sandboxes. Give me a shot. So that was like the real basis of rescore. Like, you know what? I'm going to do a Texas Chainsaw cue. I'm going to do a Nightmare on Elm Street, a Halloween, Puppet Master, Trancers, you know, the crow, I wanted to do stuff that would transport you into that world, but not feel like I'm just doing a cover version of those themes, which is, that was so important to me because if there's anything that irritates me is watching a short film, like a Halloween short film. And it's just someone doing a poor version of John Carpenter's theme. Cause it's like, you can't touch the best. So why try, you know? So what I wanted to do is like, like you said, I wanted to do something that kind of reinvented those throughout my kind of like through my filter. I wanted to, I wanted it to feel very much like a rainy days for ghosts release, but also something that you can identify. Like I think out of all of them, the two that I think really touch on the series the best for me was the Nightmare on Elm Street Q. the uh the crow one yeah. 
like I, I played that for one of my kids and they thought it was from the crow, which made me feel so great, you know, because I mean, these mu- like these scores for all these movies mean so much to me. Like there's some of my favorite pieces of music ever. So I wanted to do something that was kind of like paying homage to that and a love letter to that, but also very much something that's, that says me. Very much so. And as I said, you've really succeeded because they're very, very Thank inspired you. takes on these things. And as we wind down, I, I have to know if you had to, if you were going to make a second volume of Rescore, were there any, any things that didn't make the cut for this one, but maybe you'd like to take a crack at? That's funny because I'm actually putting out the second one late next month. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, there, there were a lot of, a lot of movies that I really wanted to do, but I didn't want to just do like a, you know, like a really long release because for me, it's always a gamble because Rainy Days for Ghosts is very much a personal thing. So it was kind of like a gamble, like, okay, do I do a release under that name for movies? You know, because that's not kind of mood music for myself and like what I'm feeling. That's kind of, you know what I mean? So, so I wanted to keep it kind of short to see if people liked it. And fortunately, a lot of people liked it and enjoyed it. So it was probably like probably the most popular thing I've done. So I wanted to touch on other ones. The I've finished one of them and, uh, it was for The Exorcist 3, which is oh, very cool. one of my favorite movies of all time. So, yeah, there's a lot of really interesting ones. Uh, some of them play in the same franchises that I did in the first one. Like I, I did a Halloween 4Q that's going to be on it, you know, because even though Halloween has a very familiar theme from Carpenter, everything that Alan Howard's did on Halloween 4, even more than the first Halloween, I think I find myself revisiting the Halloween 4 score even more. Oh, fascinating. Like it, it's such great music to write to, I think. So yeah, there, there's quite a few. Uh, the, the second one's going to be a bit longer. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, just before we go on, on the subject of Halloween 4, I had my own little, my own embarrassing moment. Um, I was in LA a couple of years ago at a screening of Dwight Little's uh, Phantom of the Opera. It was on 35. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it was very cool. It was a, a previously, un, I think it was a recently discovered 35 millimeter print. And Dwight was there in attendance. And I flew from here down there in a day. I was up at five in the morning. My flight mm-hmm. was delayed. So I was just, I didn't get a chance to nap before I got to the Arrow. And it was Phantom of the Paradise first and then Phantom of the Opera. And we got to Phantom of the Opera. I'm so, so tired. And Dwight is sitting 10 feet away from me. And I keep fucking falling asleep. Oh, boy. And I snore, Jerry. I snore. So. <laughs> oh, man. So that's. That is yeah. great. If, uh, if I'm ever, I, I sometimes have to hide when copies of Halloween 4 are in the same room. It's just a yeah. bad scene all around. I, I love that, dude. I, I interviewed him when he directed an episode of From Dust Till Dawn, the TV show. And I, I remember feeling so bad because he wanted to talk about the episode and all that I wanted to talk about was Halloween 4 and Rapid Fire with Brandon Lee. I was just going to say, I would, I would have to ask about Rapid Fire. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, definitely. So, Jerry, thank you so much for being here, man. Where can everyone find you online? Uh, I am on Twitter at Jerry is just okay. Uh, when I first started, not, not didn't start Twitter, but when I first joined it in, I think, 2008 or 2009, See, I had zero followers, so I, I, it was Jerry is awesome. And when I started writing professionally, everyone's like, this guy's kind of a jerk. So I just changed it to Jerry's just okay. So yeah, on Twitter, 
Uh, I'm on Instagram, but I usually keep it locked down because, you know, my, my kids and stuff, I, you know, that, but, uh, that, uh, rainy days for ghost.bandcamp.com. Uh, I, I try to release as much music as possible. I'm always working on that stuff. I got quite a few short films that I scored coming out in the next few months. So there's that, Brilliant. uh, the, the newest one I did is called stitches. Uh, Colin McDonald directed that. It's kind of a body horror one, like a woman. She basically goes to the ER to get stitches and they kind of slowly unravel when she gets home. It's very gross, but it's a fun watch. I think it's on, I think it's on YouTube. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Last question before we go, I got to ask, you you get to take one score with you to the proverbial desert island. What is it? Oh my God, that is such a difficult question. One score on an island. Uh, Oh my God. That is like asking which one of my kids I prefer. <laughs> okay, Next. two. No, uh, we can say two. Let's see. Uh, I'll do two. I would have to say John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Oh, man, yeah. And Cliff Martinez's score for The Neon Demon. Those are two that like I find myself listening to quite a, a bit. Uh, Cliff Martinez is up there with me as as much as Carpenter. I love Cliff Martinez. Uh, anything by Colin Stetson, who is just, God, like really quickly, just touching on Colin Stetson. He is one of, I think, the best composers working today because his stuff is so interesting. I, I do this experiment where I, I walk to a corner store by my house and it's the most boring, mundane walk ever. But what I like to do is put on Colin Stetson's score for Hereditary. And by the time I get home, I'm like a full-blown panic attack. (laughs) But yeah, I I love that stuff. Yeah, definitely. Again, my guest has been Jerry Smith. Find him as Rainy Days for Ghosts or Writing for Horror Outlets Everywhere. Jerry, thank you so much for being here, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And that's the ballgame. Thanks again to Jerry Smith for taking the time to hang out. You'll find a link to all his social media in the show notes as well as links to his Bandcamp page for Rainy Days for Ghosts. In fact, just as this episode is coming out for patrons, so Wednesday this time around, Jerry has released an advanced track from the second Rescore EP, and it is a reimagining of music from The Exorcist 3. If you are one of the many out there who understand exactly how great that film is, you will be just as excited as I am. I have not heard it yet, but I am very much looking forward to giving it a play. So... Again, you'll find all that at rainydaysforghosts.bandcamp.com or by following the link in the show notes. As for me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Largely the Truth. Feel free to follow and say hi. You can also find me co-hosting the Ghost Story Guys podcast with Paul Bestel of Mysteries and Monsters. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I co-host the bi-weekly film review live stream Weird Together with Joseph Camo, who also hosts the YouTube show In Search of Ghosts. Thanks again to Jerry Smith for taking the time. Thanks to Peter Kursov of Pizzanta Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find more from him at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. And finally, thank you for listening. Without you, there wouldn't be much point. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, Put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time.